Amen. Well, welcome everybody. I hope everybody is doing wonderful today, whether you're joining us out on the patio. If you're out on the patio, let's hear you go, woo-woo! I'm going to assume you did it. Or if you're watching us from home today, we are so thankful that you are joining us. Um, It's really hard to believe that we have spent two months now looking at just two verses of Scripture. Now, granted that each of these verses have taken us each on a treasure hunt throughout 1 Corinthians and the rest of the New Testament. So it's not like we're just looking at one word, but that one word starts us on a journey every week. But two verses... What this does, I was thinking about this, is it goes to show that we truly could spend our entire lives studying God's word and only scratch the surface of it. Now, you can take that to be two things. Well, if that's the truth, if we can only scratch the surface after studying it for my entire life, then, then why bother, you might say. But it's just the opposite. It doesn't mean that our digging isn't worth it. It's, it means that every single scratch, every single scoop, there are treasures to be found. And that is the case every day of our life when we dive into God's word. So saying that, let's do a little more digging today. But first, let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to make our hearts ready for his words. Lord, um, thank you. Thank you so much. This is that song that we just sung and the prayer that Liz just prayed. Lord, we, I echo it, God. We are so thankful for your amazing love. We, I'm so thankful that you are the pursuer of us. No matter how far and how hard we try to run away from you at times, you chase us down with your great love. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that today, that you would chase us down. I pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts ready for your words. I pray, Lord, you would speak through me to speak to everybody who is listening. And I pray, Lord, that your words of love would sink deeply into our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm curious for everybody who is watching online, what is your favorite monster movie? What's your favorite monster movie? What's your favorite monster movie, Liz? On the spot. Godzilla? Godzilla? Really? Godzilla? All right. I won't shame you. All right, post in your comments what it is <laughs> and why and why. All right, do you guys, do you guys remember the, the classic story, Frankenstein? Well, when I was in high school, I opted to watch the movie instead of read the book. And that wasn't an official option given by the teacher, but I made it my option. And it turns out after I wrote my report, I found out that they were not the same story. Years later, I found out that Mary Shelley's original story, Dr. Frankenstein, created a creature that turned into a monster only after he was rejected by his creator and by society. So the creature is dehumanized all throughout the entire story, and he's not even given a name by his creator. Throughout this entire book, he's just called the monster. And it's funny, because now if I were to say, what does Frankenstein look like, you would describe the monster, not the doctor. But in the end, what happens is the monster kills Dr. Frankenstein's fiance as an act of revenge for his rejection, thus making him become a true monster. The doctor is so embittered by this, he then chases the monster to the far corners of the world. He pursues it to no end to seek revenge and kill it. Thus, he becomes a monster too by the end of the book. So the story, what it does is it powerfully shows us that seeking revenge 
always has a way of dehumanizing us. See, the longer we nurse a grudge and feed our hearts with hate, the more that we are going to be consumed by a desire for revenge. See, we kind of think that if I can just get even and make the person who hurt me pay, then they can feel the pain that I felt, then the pain inside of me will go away knowing that we're even. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Seeking revenge doesn't make the pain go away. It actually usually just intensifies the pain inside of us. And holding on to these hurts ends up usually turning us into the monsters that we despise. And this is exactly why forgiveness is so central to the message of Christ. This is why forgiveness is absolutely essential if we're going to love each other well. See, Paul knows this. He knows that harboring unforgiveness and seeking revenge is absolutely incompatible with the church. Which is why when we get to this next part in 1 Corinthians 13, he includes this in his description of what love looks like. He says, love keeps no record of wrong. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, the last part of 5. So once again, Paul isn't just spitballing here. He's not just sitting down saying, hmm, what else does love do? Or what else does love not do? He's not just saying these things because it's going to sound really good at a wedding one day. Not at all. Paul is actually rebuking the Corinthians with every single word that he is pinning to the paper here because their lives are clearly lacking love. So when Paul says love keeps no record of wrong, it's because the Corinthians clearly had a long list of beefs with one another. See, once you start keeping score, and you start, you will always naturally start to find a way to get even. You might not plot their death. You might not chase that person to the ends of the earth to do it. But one way or another, when you start to keep score, unforgiveness is going to leak out of you in spite of your best efforts. And this is exactly what's happening in the church in Corinth. Except I wouldn't say that it's leaking I think at this point, we're going to find out. It seems to be it was exploding. It was pouring out of them. Back in chapter 6, we see, we catch a glimpse about exactly what was taking place. First, first Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you, do you ask for, the, uh, for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible? that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge and dispute between believers. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. So the people in the church, what's going on? They're suing each other. They're taking each other to court. So how many of you guys used to watch the shows Judge Judy or The People's Court? And I know there's a long list of court shows now that you can choose from. Why did you watch them? Or maybe you still do. Why do you watch them? Well, because they're amusing, aren't they? 
Now imagine though you tune in the people's court and it's and yes, I, do, I used to watch them in the early 2000s. Now imagine you're watching it and all of a sudden your brother comes out as the plaintiff and your sister comes out as a defendant and they're suing each other. And you see this, would you be amused in that moment? I doubt it. See, Paul was not amused. Paul is astonished by this for a couple of reasons. First of all, he says, civil court is not the place for Christians to be to work out their disagreements with one another. Now, side note here. This is about civil matters, not criminal matters. Paul clearly says in Romans 13, 4, that it's the role of a just government to deal fairly with criminal matters. So why not take our issues to civil court? Why not deal with those issues there? Because if we're truly a family of believers, then we should be able to work out our problems together. See, what does Paul say? He says, surely there's one wise person in your entire congregation who can help you settle this matter. Even one. Paul rebukes them for airing their dirty laundry in front of an unbelieving world. A world, and also angels, who we will evidently judge one day according to what Paul says here. Secondly, these lawsuits demonstrate the sickness and immaturity of the church in Corinth. Now, I would have thought that going and visiting temple prostitutes also would demonstrate the immaturity of the church in Corinth. But Paul is set here, we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 3, that this also is a demonstration of their immaturity. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food for you not re- we're not ready to eat it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So now what we see a few chapters later is these lawsuits are evidence of what Paul is saying here. They're guilty of trying to solve their problems in worldly ways. Now, whoo, that is a rebuke that is timeless. See, if we find ourselves turning to worldly solutions to fix our problems, what does it say about us? According to scripture, it says that we're still spiritual babies. It says that we're still worldly. Even if we give off an air of being deeply spiritual, if we can't forgive and settle our conflicts in love, then too much of the world still exists inside of us. See, forgiveness doesn't always lead to reconciliation. I'll talk a little bit more on that in a few weeks. Although that should always be the goal, but it should never lead to retaliation. There's never a time where forgiveness leads to retaliation. What are some ways that you have seen people retaliate for perceived wrongs in your past? Post those in the comments. Don't use names, but I don't think anything will surprise us anymore. See, Paul goes, Paul goes on to say something sobering. In 6-7, the first part of 6-7, Paul says this, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you are completely defeated already. 
See, Paul wants him to get something very, very clear. It doesn't matter who wins. You can win and you can win the fight and you can still walk out of the courtroom as the loser when you let your offense create a division and cause you to act like the world. So think about this. Have you ever lost a friend because you stubbornly wouldn't budge over a petty conflict? Sure, you stood your ground and you could say, I won, but maybe Paul would say, you really lost. See, the price you paid for your victory actually made you the loser. So what is Paul's solution here to the Corinthians? What is his solution to us? The second part of verse seven, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Well, I got a good reason for you, Paul, because it sucks. That's why. <laughs> I mean, we all feel this way, right? When we come to that part in, in the second part of verse seven, we all feel like, oh, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Our flesh never wants to be wrong. Our flesh never wants to be cheated. No one ever says, hey, sign me up for that. And while you're at it, I'll take a side of pain and sorrows too. None of us want this. And yet Paul contends that that just might be your path to victory. Paul's not telling us to live our lives in a way that's subject to somebody's ongoing abuse. But what he's getting at here is to check our motives and our response when we feel slighted, when we feel cheated, when we feel betrayed. We must act, ask, am I acting like Jesus or the world in my response to the person who I feel wronged by? Am I using this moment to demonstrate true, authentic love? Love that's not easily angered? Love that does not keep a record of wrong? Or am I seeking a worldly solution to resolve my hurt? Am I building up my case and storing up my defenses so that I can win when I come head to head with my new foe? You see, the way you respond when you're wrong, it'll determine what shapes you moving forward from that event. When you lean into love that's painful but necessary, you might feel, you probably will feel like you've lost in that moment. But Paul's saying you've really won because in the end, you end up looking more like Jesus. When you seek revenge, harbor bitterness, and fight fire with fire, you may feel like you won in that moment, but you've really lost because you'll end up being shaped more like the world. See, the Corinthians never thought to ask this question any of these questions. So rather than being willing to be wronged for love's sake, Paul says this in eight, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Now, that verse should really give us pause. Paul, Paul reminds them that what they are doing, they are doing to their family. You have cheated your brother. You've cheated your sister. And if you'll do this to them, then it's likely that you'll do this to anybody. See, it's bad when someone cheats on their spouse. Absolutely no doubt. But when somebody cheats on their spouse with their sister-in-law or with their brother-in-law, doesn't it sound and feel so much worse? How could somebody do such a thing to a family member? See, remember, we are our brother's keeper. 
We should always be on the lookout of how we can support, how we can build up, how we can protect, how we can bless, not cheat so that we can get ahead. The trouble is so often we don't see ourselves this way. We don't really see ourselves as brothers and sisters, just as people who happen to go to the same church as I go to. And nothing causes us, though, to forget who we are more than record keeping. Because the debt will inevitably grow if we're keeping score, and that debt will continue to move us farther and farther and farther apart. And this type of posture towards one another is actually a cancer towards the relationship because it changes the way you view the person. In his book, uh, uh, John Perkins' book, One Blood, he shares an African proverb that clearly expresses what happens when this gap between us grows and also when it narrows. He says this, When I saw you from afar, I thought you were a monster. And when you got closer, I thought you were just an animal. When you got even closer, I saw that you were a human. But when we were face to face, I realized that you were my brother. See, divisions create monsters out of brothers, monsters out of sisters. But when we choose to love in a way that narrows the gap, even if it means that we choose to just be wrong for love's sake, we turn brothers out of those same people who we once thought were monsters. But you may say to me, I don't see them as a monster. I just don't want anything to do with them. Well, anything less than a brother or sister, according to scripture, isn't enough. Later in the letter, 1 Corinthians 12, 20 through 27, Paul says this, As it is, there are many parts, but one body, that I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts, we, we need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. See, do you guys remember that movie Monsters, Inc.? There's a reason why they made Mike the Monster a walking eyeball. He is supposed to be the epitome of a monster. You don't look at him and say, hey, that eyeball with legs looks perfectly normal. In the same way, divisions in the church should not be seen as just a normal and and accepted part of church life. Anything that we allow to divide us will turn us into a monster. Why? Because it separates us from one another. Whether it's offense that Paul dealt with earlier in, this, in, the, in his epistle, or it's pride that he's primarily dealing with right here, division should always be seen as something that is freakish in the church and not be tolerated. But we willingly create a monster when we allow ourselves to become divided from one another, when we willingly separate ourselves and allow that gap to grow wider and wider. 
See, rather the eye should say to the hand, the, I shouldn't say to the hand, I'm just done with you, I don't need you. The eye should say something like this, listen, I, sometimes, hand, you drive me crazy, but I need you, and you need me because we've been put together by the Creator. Plus, getting stuff from the top shelf is a lot easier when we work together than when we are apart. We're better together. If God didn't think so, he wouldn't have brought us together. This means that we need each other, brother and sister, in order to make this house, this place thrive. See, few of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will never think about taking a fellow believer to court in order to solve a dispute. But that doesn't mean we're not tempted to fight like the world. So don't get off the hook quite yet. This is why we must avoid all forms of revenge that result from keeping records of wrongs and allowing the gap between us to widen. Here's a few things. Making cutting remarks and dragging out past injuries repeatedly. Being far more demanding and controlling with the person than you are with others. All because you feel deep down that they still owe you. Punishing them with self-righteous mercy that is really a way to make them feel small and to justify yourself. Avoiding them or being cold towards them. Dehumanizing them in a way you speak of them. Calling the person him or her or that person rather than using their name. Gossiping or slandering the other person to other people. Indulging in ill will in your heart. Now, that's the one that only you and God know about. When you indulge inside, only you and God know about it. Shouldn't that be a big enough reason to not do it? See, true forgiveness, let me run through a few things here. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. Forgiveness does not mean immediate trust, which we'll be talking about in a few weeks. Forgiveness is not making excuses for a person who hurt you. Forgiveness isn't minimizing the hurt. It hurt. Forgiveness isn't justifying it, saying it was no big deal. It was a big deal. Forgiveness is not condoning sinful actions and behaviors as acceptable. Forgiveness is not conditioned upon restitution. Forgiveness is not staying in harm's way. Forgiveness simply begins to move us to a place where we see the person who wronged us not as a nameless monster, but as a child of God and as a brother or a sister in Christ. Now, we say this at weddings a lot. And actually, the, if the worship team wants to make their way up right now, we'll close with these thoughts. We say this at weddings back in the past. We say at the end, what God has brought together, let no man separate. See, if we believe this, then we must keep choosing love. And I think that maybe that's something that we should say about one another. Maybe we should say that saying about the church too. If God brought us together, then let no one separate. So that means we have to choose love again and again and again, even when it costs us. So what does this mean for us? It means it's time for us to delete the files and toss out the logbook of the wrongs that we've held on to for a long time. It is time for a fresh start. And that honestly is one of the silver linings of this pandemic. See, it has given all of us a chance to
to choose what we really want in this life and to evaluate what's really important to us. I mean, you may have realized that you actually like not being part of the traveling basket weaving club. Guess what? You don't have to go back to it. This is a time for reevaluating everything in our lives right now. So the good news is we all have a beautiful chance to not go into the future right now with this clean, fresh start, holding on to the grudges of the past. So what do you need to let go of today in order to fully move forward into the future? What do you need to let go of to find your part in the body more completely? What do you need to let go of to move away from division and towards reconciliation with your brothers and with your sisters? See, we can choose to forgive. It might be hard, but we can choose to do it. We can choose to keep no records of wrong. We can choose to rid ourselves of a need for any kind of revenge in any one of its forms. Why? Because we have first been forgiven. It's already been given to every single one of us who are in Christ. Even when we truly acted like a monster, our Creator did not reject us, but He made us. And in spite of our rebellion, He still found a way to make us His children. Even when we acted like a monster, our Creator did not leave us nameless. He didn't reject us and depersonalize us, but He calls us highly favored, His beloved, his adored, his son, his daughter. Even when we acted like a monster, our Creator did not pursue us to the far corners of the world to enact revenge on us, even though we killed his son Jesus. Just the opposite, he sent his son Jesus into the world, knowing that his son would die to take our place. See, when you feel like choosing forgiveness is an impossible act, and it just seems altogether too hard just remember what's been done for you just remember what our creator our father has done for each and every one of us to bring this body together so right now let's bow our heads wherever you are close your eyes and invite the holy spirit to do a work inside of you right now invite the creator of the universe the lover of our soul, our God, our Father, speak deeply to us right now. And to rid our hearts of whatever is twisting us inside. What is it that needs to be let go of right now? What do we need to leave in the past so we can walk into the future free from this burden of unforgiveness? What logbook of, of wrongs have we been holding on to? What needs to get deleted today so that we can have that fresh start with our brothers and with our sisters and see that gap narrowed so that monsters can become brothers and sisters as we look face to face once again? Now, I challenge you right now to do something very difficult, very hard, to pray for that person right now. Pray for that person who you struggle with, that person who wronged you, that person who cheated you, and to bring them to Jesus right now, and to bring the hurt to Jesus right now. 
and ask the Lord to give you the strength and the power to be able to forgive them and then eventually to be able to pray blessing over them she would not hold their wrongs against them any longer that you may walk in the freedom that Jesus wants you to walk in so wherever you are right now create a sacred space and invite the Holy Spirit into this work to do what you cannot do on your own but in Jesus name you can do it find the strength to keep no records of wrong to love the way Jesus has loved you so Jesus we come to you Lord weak fragile recognizing that that in so many ways the world is still in us recognizing that in so many ways we're still immature but God we want to grow up we want to be strengthened by you we want to love better we want to look more like you Jesus and not like the world and it begins with this moment right now of declaring a fresh start a clean canvas that this pandemic has brought us that we would move into the future without holding on to the things of the past and we ask that you would give us the strength and the ability to forgive right now in Jesus name that you would give us the strength and the ability and the power to be able to release those who have wronged us and we would find freedom God that we would see them as brothers and sisters once again that we would see them as people who are flawed very much like us that we would no longer see them as monsters and upon that realization we ourselves would not become a monster that we would not be detached from your body we would not be detached from another whom you have brought us together with so Lord do this work do these miracles in our lives wherever we are all throughout the city all throughout the states maybe even all throughout the world God wherever these prayers are being lifted up right now in the mighty name of Jesus do this good work inside of us we surrender to it in Jesus mighty name we pray amen all right ACC now turn your hearts to the Lord as we continue to worship him with our song